Chapter Fourteen of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Fourteen: A Priestess, but yet a Woman. At first, La closed her eyes and clung to Tarzan in terror, though she made no outcry. But presently she gained sufficient courage to look about her, to look down at the ground beneath, and even to keep her eyes open during the wide, perilous swings from tree to tree. And then there came over her a sense of safety, because of her confidence in the perfect physical creature in whose strength and nerve and agility her fate lay. Once she raised her eyes to the burning sun and murmured a prayer of thanks to her pagan god that she had not been permitted to destroy this godlike man, and her long lashes were wet with tears. A strange anomaly was law of Opar, a creature of circumstance torn by conflicting emotions, now the cruel and bloodthirsty creature of a heartless god, and again a melting woman filled with compassion and tenderness. Sometimes the incarnation of jealousy and revenge, and sometimes a sobbing maiden, generous and forgiving, at once a virgin and a wanton, but always a woman. Such was law. She pressed her cheek close to Tarzan's shoulder. Slowly she turned her head until her hot lips were pressed against his flesh. She loved him and would gladly have died for him. Yet within an hour she had been ready to plunge a knife into his heart and might again within the coming hour. A hapless priest, seeking shelter in the jungle, chanced to show himself to enraged Tantor. The great beast turned one side, bore down upon the crooked little man, snuffed him out, and then, diverted from his course, blundered away toward the south. In a few minutes even the noise of his trumpeting was lost in the distance. Tarzan dropped to the ground, and La slipped to her feet from his back. "'Call your people together,' said Tarzan. "'They will kill me,' replied La. "'They will not kill you,' contradicted the ape-man. "'No one will kill you while Tarzan of the apes is here. Call them, and we will talk with them.' La raised her voice in a weird, flute-like call that carried far into the jungle on every side. From near and far came answering shouts in the barking tones of the Oparian priests. We come! We come! Again and again Law repeated her summons until singly and in pairs the greater portion of her following approached and halted a short distance away from the high priestess and her savior. They came with scowling brows and threatening mien. When all had come, Tarzan addressed them. Your law is safe, said the ape-man. Had she slain me, she would now herself be dead, and many more of you. But she spared me that I might save her. Go your way with her back to Opar, and Tarzan will go his way into the jungle. Let there be peace always between Tarzan and La. What is your answer? The priests grumbled and shook their heads. They spoke together, and La and Tarzan could see that they were not favorably inclined toward the proposition. They did not wish to take La back, and they did wish to complete the sacrifice of Tarzan to the flaming god. At last the ape-man became impatient. "'You will obey the commands of your queen,' he said, "'and go back to Opar with her, "'or Tarzan of the apes will call together "'the other creatures of the jungle and slay you all. "'Law saved me that I might save you and her. "'I have served you better alive than I could have dead. "'If you are not all fools, "'you will let me go my way in peace, "'and you will return to Opar with Law. 
I know not where the sacred knife is, but you can fashion another. Had I not taken it from law, you would have slain me, and now your god must be glad that I took it, since I have saved his priestess from love-mad Tantor. Will you go back to Opar with La, promising that no harm shall befall her? The priests gathered together in a little knot, arguing and discussing. They pounded upon their breasts with their fists. They raised their hands and eyes to their fiery god. They growled and barked among themselves, until it became evident to Tarzan that one of their number was preventing the acceptance of his proposal. This was the high priest whose heart was filled with jealous rage because La openly acknowledged her love for the stranger, when by the worldly customs of their cult she should have belonged to him. Seemingly there was to be no solution of the problem until another priest stepped forth and, raising his hand, addressed La. "'Cage, the high priest,' he announced, "'would sacrifice you both to the flaming god.' but all of us except Cage would gladly return to Opar with our queen. You are many against one, spoke up Tarzan. Why should you not have your will? Go your way with Law to Opar, and if Cage interferes, slay him. The priests of Opar welcomed this suggestion with loud cries of approval. To them it appeared nothing short of divine inspiration." The influence of ages of unquestioning obedience to high priests had made it seem impossible to them to question his authority, but when they realized that they could force him to their will, they were as happy as children with new toys. They rushed forward and seized Cage. They talked in loud, menacing tones into his ear. They threatened him with bludgeon and knife until at last he acquiesced in their demands, though sullenly, and then Tarzan stepped close before Cage. Priest, he said, law goes back to her temple under the protection of her priests, and the threat of Tarzan of the apes that whoever harms her shall die. Tarzan will go again to Opar before the next rains, and if harm has befallen law, woe betide Cage the high priest. Sullenly Cage promised not to harm his queen. Protect her, cried Tarzan to the other Oparians. Protect her so that when Tarzan comes again he will find law there to greet him. "'Law will be there to greet thee,' exclaimed the high priestess, "'and Law will wait, longing, always longing, until you come again. Oh, tell me that you will come.' "'Who knows?' asked the ape-man, as he swung quickly into the trees and raced off toward the east. For a moment Law stood looking after him. Then her head drooped, a sigh escaped her lips, and like an old woman she took up the march toward distant Opar. Through the trees raced Tarzan of the apes until the darkness of night had settled upon the jungle. Then he lay down and slept, with no thought beyond the morrow and with even law but the shadow of a memory within his consciousness. But a few marches to the north Lady Greystoke looked forward to the day when her mighty lord and master should discover the crime of Achmet Zek and be speeding to rescue and avenge and even as she pictured the coming of John Clayton, the object of her thoughts squatted almost naked beside a fallen log, beneath which he was searching with grimy fingers for a chance beetle or a luscious grub. Two days elapsed following the theft of the jewels before Tarzan gave them a thought. Then, as they chanced to enter his mind, he conceived a desire to play with them again, and having nothing better to do than satisfy the first whim which possessed him, he rose and started across the plain from the forest in which he had spent the preceding day. 
though no mark showed where the gems had been buried, and though the spot resembled the balance of an unbroken stretch several miles in length where the reeds terminated at the edge of the meadowland, yet the ape-man moved with unerring precision directly to the place where he had hid his treasure. With his hunting-knife he upturned the loose earth, beneath which the pouch should be, but though he excavated to a greater distance than the depth of the original hole, there was no sign of pouch or jewels. Tarzan's brow clouded as he discovered that he had been despoiled. Little or no reasoning was required to convince him of the identity of the guilty party, and with the same celerity that had marked his decision to unearth the jewels, he set out upon the trail of the thief. Though the spore was two days old, and practically obliterated in many places, Tarzan followed it with comparative ease. A white man could not have followed it twenty paces, twelve hours after it had been made. A black man would have lost it within the first mile. But Tarzan of the Apes had been forced in childhood to develop senses that an ordinary mortal scarce ever uses. We may note the garlic and whiskey on the breath of a fellow strap-hanger, or the cheap perfume emanating from the person of the wondrous lady sitting in front of us, and deplore the fact of our sensitive noses, but as a matter of fact we cannot smell at all. Our olfactory organs are practically atrophied, by comparison with the development of the sense among the beasts of the wild. Where a foot is placed, an effluvium remains for a considerable time. It is beyond the range of our sensibilities, but to a creature of the lower orders, especially to the hunters and the hunted, as interesting and oft-times more lucid than is the printed page to us. Nor was Tarzan dependent alone upon his sense of smell. Vision and hearing had been brought to a marvelous state of development by the necessities of his early life, where survival itself depended almost daily upon the exercise of the keenest vigilance and the constant use of all his faculties. And so he followed the old trail of the Belgian through the forest and toward the north, but because of the age of the trail he was constrained to a far from rapid progress. The man he followed was two days ahead of him, when Tarzan took up the pursuit, and each day he gained upon the ape-man. The latter, however, felt not the slightest doubt as to the outcome. Some day he would overhaul his quarry. He could bide his time in peace until that day dawned. Doggedly he followed the faint spore, pausing by day only to kill and eat, and at night only to sleep and refresh himself. Occasionally he passed parties of savage warriors, but these he gave a wide berth, for he was hunting with a purpose that was not to be distracted by the minor accidents of the trail. These parties were of the collecting hordes of the Waziri and their allies, which Basuli had scattered his messengers broadcast to summon. They were marching to a common rendezvous in preparation for an assault upon the stronghold of Achmet Zek. But to Tarzan they were enemies. He retained no conscious memory of any friendship for the black men. It was night when he halted outside the palisaded village of the Arab raider. Perched in the branches of a great tree, he gazed down upon the life within the enclosure. To this place had the spore led him. His quarry must be within. But how was he to find him among so many huts? Tarzan, although cognizant of his mighty powers, realized also his limitations. He knew that he could not successfully cope with great numbers in open battle. 
he must resort to the stealth and trickery of the wild beast if he were to succeed. Sitting in the safety of his tree, munching upon the leg-bone of Horta the boar, Tarzan waited a favorable opportunity to enter the village. For a while he gnawed at the bulging round ends of the large bone, splintering off small pieces between his strong jaws and sucking at the delicious marrow within. But all the time he cast repeated glances into the village. He saw white-robed figures and half-naked blacks, but not once did he see one who resembled the stealer of the gems. Patiently he waited until the streets were deserted by all save the sentries at the gates. Then he dropped lightly to the ground, circled to the opposite side of the village, and approached the palisade. At his side hung a long rawhide rope, a natural and more dependable evolution from the grass rope of his childhood. Loosening this, he spread the noose upon the ground behind him, and with a quick movement of his wrist tossed the coils over one of the sharpened projections of the summit of the palisade. Drawing the noose taut, he tested the solidity of its hold. Satisfied, the ape-man ran nimbly up the vertical wall, aided by the rope which he clutched in both hands. Once at the top, it required but a moment to gather the dangling rope once more into its coils, make it fast again at his waist, take a quick glance downward within the palisade, and, assured that no one lurked directly beneath him, drop softly to the ground. Now he was within the village. Before him stretched a series of tents and native huts. The business of exploring each of them would be fraught with danger, but danger was only a natural factor of each day's life. It never appalled Tarzan. The chances appealed to him, the chances of life and death with his prowess and his faculties pitted against those of a worthy antagonist. It was not necessary that he enter each habitation through a door, a window, or an open chink. His nose told him whether or not his prey lay within. For some time he found one disappointment following upon the heels of another in quick succession. No spore of the Belgian was discernible, but at last he came to a tent where the smell of the thief was strong. Tarzan listened, his ear close to the canvas at the rear, but no sound came from within. At last he cut one of the pin-ropes, raised the bottom of the canvas, and intruded his head within the interior. All was quiet and dark. Tarzan crawled cautiously within. The scent of the Belgian was strong, but it was not live scent. Even before he had examined the interior minutely, Tarzan knew that no one was within it. In one corner he found a pile of blankets and clothing scattered about, but no pouch of pretty pebbles. A careful examination of the balance of the tent revealed nothing more, at least nothing to indicate the presence of the jewels. But at the side where the blankets and clothing lay, the ape-man discovered that the tent wall had been loosened at the bottom, and presently he sensed that the Belgian had recently passed out of the tent by this avenue. Tarzan was not long in following the way that his prey had fled. The spoor led always in the shadow and at the rear of the huts and tents of the village. It was quite evident to Tarzan that the Belgian had gone alone and secretly upon his mission. Evidently he feared the inhabitants of the village, or at least his work had been of such a nature that he dared not risk detection. At the back of a native hut the spoor led through a small hole recently cut in the brush wall and into the dark interior beyond. Fearlessly Tarzan followed the trail. On hands and knees he crawled through the small aperture. 
Within the hut his nostrils were assailed by many odors, but clear and distinct among them was one that half aroused a latent memory of the past. It was the faint and delicate odor of a woman. With the cognizance of it there rose in the breast of the ape-man a strange uneasiness, the result of an irresistible force which he was destined to become acquainted with anew, the instinct which draws the male to his mate. In the same hut was the scent spore of the Belgian, too, and as both these assailed the nostrils of the ape-man, mingling one with the other, a jealous rage leaped and burned within him, though his memory held before the mirror of recollection no image of the she to which he had attached his desire. Like the tent he had investigated, the hut, too, was empty, and after satisfying himself that his stolen pouch was secreted nowhere within, he left as he had entered by the hole in the rear wall. Here he took up the spore of the Belgian, followed it across the clearing, over the palisade, and out into the dark jungle beyond. End of chapter 14